You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.20, Earthbound, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and frankly, I'm worried that Neo Zeon may be going through villain archetypes at an unsustainable rate. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and willing to call it now, Beach and Mondo do not have a future in weapons R&D. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 426 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Justin K, Adam, Sean M, Scrimmy Bingus, which if that turns out to mean something bad and you tricked me, I will be angry, and The White Doll. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon, a subscriber at SubscribeStar.com slash GundamPodcast, or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash GundamPodcast. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 22, Judo Launch, or Judo Shutsugeki. You could also translate that as Judo Sally Forth. And I think I'll do so from now on. For research this week, Nina has a piece on the history of ballet lessons for the general public, and how they function as a class marker. But first, let's tune in to Radio Free Shangri-La and the continuing adventures of Detective James Stryker. Last time on The New Adventures of Detective James Stryker. Hey, uh, you got uh, anything going on tonight? Why won't you come on over for dinner? I know my daughter Betty will love to see you again. I, Detective James Stryker, will solve the case of the salty cola. No, no, yeah. We had our soda salted the other week. It got salted real bad, too. I use the guy who's been asking about the soda pop. Could the wave of soda saltings be an act of Xeon sabotage? And now, The Case of the Salty Cola, Part 2. It's not like I was surprised when I saw Cecilia take a bribe from that Xeon officer. Sure, Cecilia seems like a good kid, but... Well, when you're living on the edge like she is like all of us are. You're never more than one bad day away from selling your soul. Because maybe it's the one thing you've got left to sell. I couldn't tell Mr. Galboldi about what I'd seen. He wouldn't understand. But someday all that easy Xeon money will run out, and Cecilia's going to need this waitressing job. Besides, I still had no proof it was really her salting the cola. I had to keep digging. Those toughs took my notes when they turned out my pockets. 
but they couldn't take the notes I keep in my head. Even with that goon playing little drummer boy on the back of my skull with his blackjack. I'd noticed something during my interviews. They salted our Pepsi, they salted our Sprite, and they even salted our Lieutenant Pepper. The only drinks getting salted were made by soft drink megacorp Anaheim Beverages, better known as Anbev. To learn more, I had to infiltrate the Anbev warehouse in the Anaheim Electronics Complex. And I knew just how I'd get in. Hey, stop right there. This is a secure facility. <sighs> yeah, buddy. We're gonna need to see some ID. Oh, uh, <clears throat> sorry about that, officers. I'm just here to, uh, deliver some pizza. Say, do you happen to like pizza? The guys inside only ordered one, but I, I brought two by mistake, and I'd hate for it to go to waste. <laughs> nice try, but... Wait, 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 wait. Is that one of Alfredo Galbaldi's famous moon-faced pizza pies, just like his grandma used to make? Once I got past the guards, I went straight for the warehouse offices. But before I even got close... Now there, Tiger, let me tell you. Whether you're looking to mass-produce a new drink... Ah, they're coming this way. I've got to hide. Maybe under that cardboard box? No, it doesn't look big enough. State-of-the-art manufacturing solutions to fit your needs. Okay. Behind the potted plant it is. We're also the only moon-based drink distributor to earn an ESSO 900 certification from the Earth Sphere Standards Organization. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds impressive. And we can offer you a lower price than our competitors, because we can source all the psychoactive ingredients directly from our sister companies in the Anaheim conglomerate. Uh, does that include Nutipify? Well, it's a generic version. But the side effects are practically identical, and at less than a fraction of the price. That sounds too good to be true. I'll accept it at face value. Now, I know that Anbev is the official supplier of coffee, tea, soft drinks, and light beer for the AUG, but I'm planning to destroy them all, and Tim Timpson's authentic Become a Monster canned energy beverage is an integral part of my scheme. Is that going to create a conflict of interest for you? No, not at all. All Anaheim conglomerate companies are divided into separate business units that operate independently according to the management strategy we call the left hand doesn't know what crimes the right hand is doing. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks again for the tour, folks. I'll see myself out. Okay, he's gone. What did you want to tell me about the cola? Oh, I got a call from Mr. Wong. He says, We can't keep using salt to cover up the taste of the tainted soda syrup. People are starting to get suspicious. But we've still got a thousand units of tainted syrup left. What are we supposed to do with it? Hire a cargo ship and just dump them in space? I thought of that, but someone already bought every cargo ship in the city. Oh, you're kidding me. If we were on Earth, we could just dump it in the nearest river. Wait, I've got it. The Argama is about to leave for another mission. They put in a big order for drinks, too. What if we give them all the tainted salted soda? 
Won't they notice? Sure, but with the way the brass treats them, what do you think the chances are they'll live long enough to complain? (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a Xeon operation after all. The salty soda was coming from inside this very warehouse. And now it's going to be loaded onto the Argama? Then that's where I need to go to get proof of Anaheim's misdeeds. And now the recap for Judo, Sally Forth. Leaving Granada after evading Goten's trap, the Argama sets a course for Earth. Matcha arrives with a new mobile suit, a repaired but otherwise identical to before Hyakushiki, and additional orders and intel. Haman is aboard her flagship, and the Argama is ordered to find and sink the ship. In the hangar, Bicha and Mondo present Judo with their latest project, a series of container bombs strung on links of cable that are meant to be attached to the double Zeta. Their suggestion is that, with the bombs attached to his mobile suit, he can move through the Axis fleet looking for Lena, and the Axis mobile suits won't be able to attack him. They are pretty sure that the cables are long enough that any exploding bombs won't hurt the Double Zeta. When Judo hesitates, Bicha gets in his face, saying, We're trying to help you! Don't you want to save Lena? Judo agrees to the plan and goes to begin preparations. Once he's gone, Bicha and Mondo muse over the fact that there's no way this plan works, and that when the Double Zeta is inevitably destroyed, it'll be time for a new main character. Shinta and Kumo overhear this and try to warn Judo, but are scooped up by another crew member and scolded for goofing off. The Argama finally encounters the enemy fleet. Judo makes for the Double Zeta's cockpit, and when Astonaji confronts him about launching without orders, Judo shoves him out of the way and reveals that he's covered himself in hand grenades. And the new weapon that Ino has been helping Judo install? It's a series of bombs! In an attempt to stop Judo from going through with this reckless plan, Astonaji and Ino try to cut the cables loose. In the process, Ino gets tangled. One of the cables wraps around his midsection and he can't get free. Judo doesn't see him, and Ino just barely manages to grab hold of the double Zeta and close his visor right before Judo launches into space. On his way to confront the Axis fleet, Judo finally spots Ino. A sudden stop yanks Ino away from the double Zeta, but he reels himself back in and angrily confronts Judo about his recklessness. The two are arguing when Axis mobile suits fly by, shooting, and Judo tries to shove Eno out into space so that he can close the cockpit. Eno is understandably indignant about this, but while they fight, the enemy mobile suits pass them by. After all, the Argama is their real target. El and Rue launch carefully. The space around the Argama is soon thick with laser fire. And while they fight off Axis mobile suits, an Axis ship captained by the new-to-us Rakan Dakaran positions itself above the Argama, and readies a surprise attack. At the same time, Judo confronts another ship in the Axis fleet. He demands to know where Lena is and threatens to crush the bridge if they lie to him. When one of the ship's mobile suits attacks, he disconnects one of the bomb cables and lashes out with it like a whip. Once it's wrapped around the enemy mobile suit, he fires his beam rifle and the bombs explode, sending the fiery wreck of the mobile suit crashing into the enemy ship. Judo moves on to the next Axis ship he can find. 
Rakan's ship emerges from the debris on a collision course with the Argama. When his bridge crew express hesitation over his plan to ram the Ayug ship, he threatens to charge anyone who leaves the bridge with desertion. Bright orders the Argama to evade, and to prepare the mega-particle beam cannon to fire. Torres's concern that any strike at this range would also destroy the Argama is ignored, and Bright orders the cannon to fire. The blast and the ships themselves just barely miss each other, pushed off course by the beam, and Rakan takes off in his mobile suit, the Drysen. Haman can sense Judo's approach, the pressure new types so often feel in each other's proximity. She remembers him from their encounter at the palace on Axis Colony. When he demands to know where Lena is, she uses the holoscope to address him, her projection stating that Lena is aboard, he should come and get her. Ino doesn't trust her, but Judo cannot let the possibility pass him by. Once they board, Ino stays in the double Zeta while Judo goes to talk. Haman immediately drags him away from her guards and to a quiet room where they can talk alone. She reveals that Lena isn't there, but that he should have known that already. Tells him that they are connected, that their new type powers draw them to each other, and that he ought to ally himself with her. As members of the same race, there is no reason for them to fight each other. Judo pushes her away and tries to leave, but she pins him to a wall. He feels strange, sees outer space swirling around them. At the same time that he fears Haman and knows her to be his enemy, he feels a pleasant sensation with her near. She is leaning in as if to kiss him when her guards arrive and break the spell. Judo escapes through the ship using the grenades he brought to send soldiers running. Once he's made it to the Double Zeta, he finds the remaining bomb cables were cut off while he was gone, and chides Eno while blasting his way out of the hangar. On the way back to the Argama, he's caught by Rakan. Although he struggles against the more experienced pilot, he's eventually able to slice clean through the Drysen, and Rakan just manages to eject before the mobile suit explodes. As he does after every failed attempt, Judo swears that he'll find and rescue Lena, then returns to the Argama. kind of a mess of an episode, isn't it? Yeah, what is the point of this episode? Introduce Rakan. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, this episode contains, I think, like four and a half really good scenes. And gosh, the really good scenes are really good. But the whole rest of the episode just feels so dumb and pointless. And I can't figure out if we're supposed to despise Bija and Mondo or not. Like, what does the show want us to think of these two? There are a couple of moments in this episode that feel as though, I don't know, they're like, they're not funny, but they're not treated seriously mm -hmm. in a way that I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, what am I supposed to feel about this? What is this supposed to tell me about the characters? Is anybody ever going to acknowledge these events ever again? When this episode commits to being serious, it's real good. And when this episode tries to be, like, goofy, no consequences, no stakes, nothing is real or matters, it falls apart. And the disconnect between those two really make this episode feel like a, I don't know if I'm using this phrase correctly, but like a dog's breakfast. <laughs> like, it's a lot of component parts that don't hold together. It's a mess. 
and kind of gross. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now let's get specific about what we mean by that. The whole thing with the bombs. What a cockamamie plan. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible plan um, on like a bunch of different levels. Bicha and Mondo really seem like they're trying to get Judo actually killed so that they can be the main characters of the show. Yeah, there's like a... It's unclear if they're using main character in sort of like a metaphorical main character of life kind of way or if they are actually like winking at the fact that they know that they're in a show. Yeah. Is this really them breaking the fourth wall or is this just some kids who have watched a lot of cartoon shows and so talk about and think about life in terms of main characters and heroes? The fact that they are pretty explicitly trying to get Judo killed or maimed. And then we see this sort of blasé attitude towards death continue through the episode. You know, having those wires wrapped around him as they whip back and forth in space would almost definitely kill a person. Oh, he's dead. At 10 minutes and 25 seconds into the episode, Eno is very dead. And like, I I was cringing through that whole scene. I was like, oh my God, Eno is going to get like torn in half. Yeah, having a cable wrapped around you like that is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a person. And when the double Zeta stops abruptly in space and all of the bombs go past it and then the wires get pulled taut, like... That would have bisected Eno. No question about it. I do not need to consult our physics expert for this one. That would have killed him very dead. And then it doesn't. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, but he still confronts Judo. Like, what are you doing? What do you, you know, they fight. And then when the enemy shows up, Judo is just like, oh, I have to close the cockpit. I guess you have to hang out in space some more. Again, completely indifferent to the fact that you know, would die. Uh, neither of them are actually trying to get, you know, unwrapped from the cable. And then, you know, somehow becomes unwrapped from the cable somehow. And gets in the cockpit. Uh, and then later we have subsequent scenes, similarly, totally blasé about death. Uh, Judo threatens to destroy the bridge of that one Axis ship, uh, gets sort of a cheap out in that he does not crush it himself, but a mobile suit that he blows up with bombs, crashes into it, and presumably all those people die. Which I think is functionally indistinguishable from Judo killing all of those people. It feels less deliberate. Like, I feel like Judo taking the hands of the double Zeta and crushing that cockpit would have felt like like a progression in a way of this character. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. his desperation to find Lena is pushing him to do more and more brutal things. This felt like, like it was meaning, like this felt like it didn't matter. Judo has had moments in the past where he's hesitated to kill people. At this point, he has also killed a lot of people, but pretty much always enemy pilots. Destroying a bridge with a bunch of people who aren't any direct threat to him, that is or it would be another step for Judo. And the show kind of cheats by having him threaten the bridge and then having it be destroyed by something else. Which is especially noteworthy because later in the episode, when Judo is running around the Satellan and he's throwing grenades all over the place, the show is very careful not to have him kill anybody. Every time he throws a grenade, the person like runs away from it, and then later we see them alive. And yet, when they blast their way out of the hangar, it makes a point of showing several 
Axis soldiers get sucked into space and then them floating limply in space. Right. What are the stakes in this show? What is its actual relationship with death? Is this like a fun, loosey-goosey, low-stakes cartoon show? Or is this a serious Gundam show where death is meaningful? Right. And is Judo's indifference or apparent, you know, lack of awareness of the fact that he's killing people meant to mean anything? Or is it just badly written? <laughs> and it really feels like the whole thing with the bombs is just a flimsy excuse to get him onto the Sadalan so that he can have this interaction with Haman. Because by the time he gets back into the Double Zeta, the bombs have been unceremoniously cut off. And so, like, they don't play any further role in the story. They don't really play any role in the story at all, except to get Judo out alone and onto the enemy ship so that he and Haman can have this, like, weird new type enmeshing. And Haman can try to, like, brain melt him onto her side. Which is a whole nother series of scenes <laughs> that I'm just like, you know, at any point she probably could have told her soldiers like, hey, I think I can turn this kid. Leave me alone with him. Wait outside the door. I'll call you if I need help. You know, she's in charge. She can <laughs> act like she's in charge instead of acting like a teenage girl who's sneaking out of her bedroom at night to meet a boy. <laughs> that didn't bother me all that much. Because while we've seen that Haman is very much in charge of Axis. We've also in the past seen her lackeys, um, you know, their desire to protect her, their adulation of her drives them to do things that don't necessarily fit with her schemes. So I, I buy that. And I did really appreciate the way they make Haman's intimidation of Judo feel at once like kind of pseudo romantic or sexual, but also not, to feel appropriately unreal, to feel eerie, to have that sense of the psychic connection between the two of them, and the way Haman is intentionally trying to abuse or use her new type powers in order to influence him. One of the problems that I had with this scene, the more I thought about it, the more it sort of resolved itself. Because initially I was thinking, if Haman hadn't come on quite so strong to Judo, and if she had appealed to something other than his being a new type, if, for instance, she said, your sister's not here, but I know where she is. I can reunite the two of you. But you know, she's been having a much better life here in Axis Zeon than she would have had over there. We can do all of this stuff for her. You know, it seems like nobody was helping you to get her back. Wouldn't you be better off? <laughs> you know, if, if she understood him and his motivations better... Mm -hmm and appealed to something other than the new type thing, which is still so amorphous for him. It's certainly not a basis for an allegiance. Well, and she very explicitly references like race. Yeah. It's like, we're the same race. But at the same time, the reason that sort of resolved itself for me is that we have to remember the connection goes both ways. She is also being affected by him in ways that are maybe influencing her you know, to act more intensely hmm. than, than she might at a different moment. That's a good point, and one I hadn't thought about. 
I just thought Haman like doesn't know those things about judo. She doesn't. I mean, she really, doesn't. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't really even know what Lena's circumstances are. She just knows she's this girl that Glemmy has taken into custody. Um, so Haman is not making an appeal that's directed towards judo specifically. It's just a sort of like general purpose, broadband, like new type recruitment uh, propaganda. And it's very much the sort of thing Quattro would say to somebody. But at the same time, when she feels him coming, she does the, the classic, Kono presha. <laughs> uh, but she remembers who he is. She says, oh, it's that boy. And I thought this was a bit cheesy, but she sort of latches on to the fact that in the middle of a battle, he's looking for someone rather than fighting, really. And wonders to herself if he's some completely new type of new type. <laughs> An entirely different kind of new type. And we get strong femme fatale vibes from Judo's reaction of, she smells nice, <laughs> which is very Tomino, sent right, to a woman, right. first Gundam. Uh, but he is afraid of her. He finds her scary and her effect on him scary. Yeah, I think Tomino uses that word, which always gets translated as smell, for like, as you pointed out way back in first Gundam, uh, aura feeling it's it's more than just smell and it's a it's a classic tominoism so to be totally clear i think this scene between judo and haman is one of the what i'm calling four and a half good scenes in this episode okay i think it's it's difficult for me to discount everything around it <laughs> <laughs> but i can see how yeah, her attempt to appeal to some sort of space noid or, or new type, like, group solidarity uh, and how that doesn't really work with him is a good and necessary scene that we, we need to have happen in the show. One thing I really enjoyed about it is how it feels like Haman's appeal to Judo, the way she's influencing him psychically, is actually very different from the words that she's saying. But those two things are both happening in parallel. And I think that's represented in the scene. And I really liked that. I also like how intimidating and scary it makes her presence for him. And the show doesn't make a joke out of it. The show doesn't try to pretend that actually having an older woman come on to you like this would be pretty cool. Uh, it allows Judo to be scared and it conveys that and it conveys that feeling to the audience authentically. And I love the bit at the end where Haman like leans in towards him. And at first it looks like she's going to try to kiss him, but her mouth sort of goes past his. And it's almost like she's going to whisper something into his ear. See, I thought it looked like she was going to kiss him and got stopped short. Uh, what I appreciated in that scene is he does look frightened. He's got the sort of something about the way they've drawn his facial expression conveys more uh, paralyzed than excited, <laughs> which uh, I think is appropriate. What? I mean, I was around Judo's age when I had my first kiss with a girl, and I was decidedly paralyzed. Was she also a terrifying space Nazi? She was terrifying in many ways. <laughs> it's very short. And there's not much actual content in it, but I particularly like the scene where uh, Haman uses the holoscope so that it appears as though she is bestride the earth. <laughs> Standing on the earth, boots on the planet. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's just really well done. 
And while it's true that there's not a ton of content in it, her speech does convey a lot about Neo-Zeon as an organization and what it stands for. Because it is all grievance. I was it gonna is say, all vengeance. It's there founded is on a grievance. No pretense of trying to build a better world. Neo-Zeon is about revenging the hurts that have been done to the people of Zeon and putting them on top, punishing the people of the Earth. Some revolutions are about changing the world and making it better, and some revolutions are just about changing who's on top. Yeah. I did a little bonus episode about the word bonsai, and it doesn't always have like militaristic or nationalistic connotations, but it certainly does here. Yeah. What did you think of Haman's new outfit? It's pretty cool. I had actually seen it before uh, because of the cosplay commission. We commissioned a cosplay artist to create a Haman cosplay and document the process so that we could see what it's like, you know, making a cosplay from design to finished work. And this is the costume she's making. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, that cosplay artist, their handle is Rosenrabbit. We will include a link to their social media in the show notes. So check it out. Really incredible stuff. And if you want to see more of that cosplay, you can find it on our Patreon. I do want to highlight Haman's like face mask crown thing that she wears, which is very cool and makes its first appearance in this episode. And I have to point out that it's actually very similar to the face of the Gundam Double Zeta mm. in the way that it like, basically it frames her face very much like the way the sort of pseudo helmet on the Gundam frames the Gundam's face. It has not quite a V-fin because they come out of the face at different places, but like the Double Zeta, it has two sets of prongs, I guess, coming out of it. And then, of course, the probably the most striking part of it is that gem that sits right on her forehead and looks like the crest that every Gundam has. I found the design and shape of it reminiscent of the old Xeon Palace from First Gundam, hmm. which also had a sort of central shape with uh, sort of like branching prongs coming out of it. I had not made that connection. I will have to go back and look at them side by side. I mean, I could be remembering wrong. <laughs> it was a while ago. I'm uh, going to assume that you're correct, and I'll put together a comparison image so that you can see Haman's crown next to the Xeon castle from season one and the Double Zeta's head, and you can decide which one you think it more closely resembles. Speaking of Haman's design, I commented way back in the episodes that take place on Axis that I did not like her new hair. Well, apparently the new hair was an aberration because we are back to the triangle hair, which I prefer. That was her, you know, vacation hair. It's just odd to me, the, the inconsistency <laughs> of that character design, but somebody got creative and then got told to stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, they heard that you didn't like it. Yes, I'm sure someone traveled to the future and was like, these Americans, they do not like this Haman design. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what happened. <laughs> Possible additional reasons for this episode, for all that we didn't like it much. Uh, they might have wanted to reintroduce the Hyakushiki. I assume just because it's a popular design and people really like it. And so they're like, all right, bring it back. <laughs> I mean, why bother designing a new mobile suit when you could just reintroduce an old one? And we also introduce Rakan. Rakan Dakaran. 
I found it interesting that he is, I think, the brownest character that we've had in Double Zeta. And yet within this one episode, he ranges from dark to merely tan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there have been a few explicitly black characters, but like background characters, right? Not named, foreground, clearly important characters. The name Rakan is a real name of Arabic origin. Um, it's also a Japanese Buddhist term. I don't know if he's meant to reference both of those uh, at the same time, or if it's just a coincidence. We'll find out more about him in the future, I imagine. He's also what feels like a reference to the popularity of bodybuilding culture in the 80s. He's the first character to appear who's like really built. Now, a lot of the guys in Zeta Gundam, your uh, Captain Beckoner, your Quattro Baginas were like muscular, but not built in the way that this guy is. This guy, every time he's on screen, I want to go to the gym. <laughs> I was also intrigued by his mobile suit, the Drysen, which I thought looked a lot like the Black Tristars. Those were Doms? Yeah, it's a uh, spiritual descendant of the Dom. Fights with a beam Naginata? Um, no, I mean, it's got a sort of an axe blade at one end and a like sword blade at the other. Okay, I think I only noticed the sword blade. It's a, it's a long pole arm. Yeah. A Naginata is a... A Japanese polearm with a fairly long blade at one end. No, but this is something else. Well, it is the future. We've got to make <laughs> stuff interesting. Yeah, the Dryson is a cool design. I like it. I imagine we'll be seeing it again, even though this one got destroyed. Destroying the Dryson at the end of this does contribute to this episode feeling kind of ephemeral, like introduced the new mobile suit, destroyed the new mobile suit all in one episode. Let's just wash our hands of the whole thing. And then we get... Several sort of throwaway scenes at the end of the episode that in a lot of ways undercut whatever emotion we might have felt, you know, after Judo defeats the, the Dryson after he cuts it in half and it explodes. It's him once again swearing, I'll save you, Lena. And we get Lena taking a ballet lesson because apparently the Mindra also has a dance studio and a ballet teacher. And there's something about her smile that feels nervous. Like, she feels like a hostage still. But we're constantly being forced to confront the fact that, like, her life in Axis is sort of what Judo always wanted for her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they do have her, we get a shot of her face in that ballet scene. And she looks, like, sad and withdrawn and preoccupied. And then she gets the compliment from the dance teacher and she briefly brightens up a little bit. We see that despite all of this uh, luxury, Lena is still not happy. Yeah, I mean, that's what I meant by, um, like, even when she smiles, it felt like a nervous smile to me. Like, she's afraid of what might happen if she's not good at ballet. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the only reason I can think of to include this scene is to, again, hammer home, like, oh, Judo, the life that you thought you wanted for Lena, she's having it now. <laughs> But also, what is the plan for her? Because it's not just her taking ballet, it's her taking ballet while Glemmy watches. Why is he so invested in teaching her all of these things? What is the point? And for once, I'm not actually complaining about what is the point, because I think the point is to make us wonder what the point is. It is intentionally mysterious. And I'll allow that. 
I classify the ballet scene as another of my four and a half good scenes. It might be the half, though. It's an important scene, and it's a good scene. And maybe it would have felt okay if it was where the episode ended. If Judo was like, Lena, I'll save you. And then we see Lena in apparent luxury, but still nervous and still mm -hmm. hostage. Like, maybe it would have been okay if it was an ending. But as a not the ending, just like weird insert, uh -huh. it didn't feel necessarily like it added much to the episode or like it fit here. I'll agree with that. If we had gotten this at the very end with like Lena smiling nervously and then fade to black, go to credits, I think that would have been a better ending. Yeah, that would have worked. Um, but then instead we have the kind of slapstick Bichan Mondo being whacked with sticks by Shintan Kum. Now, not that I don't like seeing Bichan Mondo get whacked with sticks by Shintan Kum. I'm in favor. But, you know, they're trying to make excuses and Bright is thinking to himself, well, Shintan Kum are right. Judo would never have gone out into space if, you know, Bichan Mondo hadn't given him these bombs and encouraged him. But then nothing happens. They're not in a cell. Nothing is happening to them. I mean, they're being hit, but by toddlers, <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the implication of this scene seems to be that the crew of the Argama, including Bright, know that Bicha and Mondo gave Judo a bunch of bombs in the hope that he would go and die. And yet nothing happens? What are the stakes? What are the consequences for any behavior? Tom, hasn't this week taught you that there are none? Oh my god. <laughs> I know we tried to have that Judo- That reference is not going to make sense to people in a year. <laughs> I know that we tried to have Judo killed, but now it's time for unity aboard the Argama. We need to move on. It would be very divisive to punish us for trying to have our friend killed. I think Bright's line here, the translation is actually a little unclear. And so I had to reference a, uh, a different translation and then to sort of synthesize them to try to understand exactly what Bright is saying. And I think at the end, what he's saying is actually about how awesome Judo is because he's saying like another person other than Judo wouldn't have been able to make it back from this situation. And perhaps also that he doesn't really blame Judo. Like Judo, we've just seen is thinking to himself, oh, I bet Bright is really angry. And this is perhaps meant to explain away the fact that Judo's not going to be punished for this because ultimately Bright thinks it was Bisha and Mondo's fault. Another scene I really liked in this episode is when Rakan's ship is charging at the Argama and they do a sort of like playing chicken kind of thing, nearly crashing at the end. I thought that was really exciting. Well, and it sets up the two commanders, right? You know, Rakan, it's unclear if he really wanted his ship to crash into the Argama or he just needed the Argama to believe that they were trying to do that. Uh, but, you know, threatening his own men who are like, this is insane. We can't do this. And then contrasted with Bright being told, but if we shoot at this range, we'll get blown up too. And he's like, prepare the <laughs> cannon. Yeah. Yeah, the contrast between Rakan, who is uh, older, definitely a veteran, clearly experienced, versus all of the very young Neo Zeon officers on his bridge. You know, one thing that Double Zeta has always been good about from the beginning is immediately characterizing each of the antagonists in a unique and striking way. We know immediately in one episode who Rakan is and what we can expect from him as a character. And that feels very different from Zeta, where so many of the antagonists felt interchangeable or disposable or just like, 
stood on a spaceship bridge a thousand kilometers away from a battle, watching the lights and waxing philosophical. Yeah, he seems like an interesting character. I'm most curious to see if they continue to contrast him with Bright. If that initial contrast and juxtaposition of the two of them is going to continue to be a thing uh, for as long as he stays in our story. Although, (laughs) while they create some great characters, we are then left to wonder what happens to them. Because where the heck is Mashima? (laughs) And what is Kiara doing on Granada? And where's Peru? Nobody knows, and apparently it doesn't matter. Of course, that applies on the other side, too. Shinta and Kum appear in this episode after being absent for five episodes in a row. Welcome back, Shinta and Kum. And now Nina's research on ballet. The sight of young girls taking ballet lessons and performing in recitals with no intention of ever becoming professional dancers is so much a part of American culture now that we take it for granted. But of course, this wasn't always the case. And what about ballet's history in Japan? One of my sources focusing on the United States pointed out that prior to the 20th century, most children worked. (laughs) There would have been little time and less money for recreational classes. It wasn't until child labor became rarer and families generally more affluent that ballet and similar recreational or extracurricular activities became mainstream. It seems logical enough that the same would apply in Japan. Ballet was first introduced to Japan in the early 20th century. The Japanese Imperial Theater, founded in 1911, included in its repertoire a number of Western performing arts, including opera, classical music, and ballet. From 1936 until 1957, Russian ballerina Olga Ivanova Pavlova, whose stage name was Olga Sapphire and whose Japanese name was Shimizu Midori, worked on further establishing ballet in Japan. Hers is a fascinating story. She was already a professional ballet dancer when she married a Japanese diplomat in Russia. And when prejudice over their mixed-race marriage, with the added threat of being accused of spying, became too much, she and her husband moved to Tokyo, where she would go on to perform and choreograph not only ballet, but also Japanese dances. Early on, Japanese audiences really didn't get ballet. It's easy to forget how much exposure and education goes into building an audience, especially for traditional arts. She also realized that given the scarcity of ballet professionals in Japan, she would have to do everything herself. Choreography, costumes, dance training, lighting, music selection, and staging. Not to mention performing. All while learning Japanese language and customs. Her premiere was actually at the Takarazuka Theater in 1936, and she danced throughout the 30s and 40s, primarily in Tokyo at the Nihon Gekijo Theater. Her last performance was in 1953. It's been a while since we've talked about Takarazuka, but you can go back to season one and our discussions of Lieutenant Matilda for a refresher. Her main focuses seem to have been on performing and choreographing, and the teaching she did focused on professional dancers, but she wrote three books that are considered highly influential to the growth of ballet in Japan. Popularization and democratization of access to ballet didn't happen until after World War II, during the period of rapid economic growth and increasing prosperity. Even then, in the immediate post-war period, only urban, upper-middle-class, and upper-class families had access to ballet lessons and performances. But a broader swath of the population learned about ballet from popular girls' manga with titles like Arabesque and Swan, 
and from girls' magazines. There was even a soap opera version of the Red Shoes, called simply enough Akai Kutsu, which means red shoes, in 1972. For those of you who are unfamiliar, The Red Shoes is an 1845 Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale that was adapted into a ballet and, in 1948, a British film, which was also released in Japan. Over the same period, the number of ballet schools increased and spread beyond the largest urban centers. In terms of performances, the New York City Ballet toured Japan in 1958, and the Soviet Ministry of Culture sent two icons of Soviet ballet, Sulamith M. Messerer and Alexei A. Varlamov, to Tokyo in 1959 to establish a school to teach Russian ballet. That school closed by the mid-1960s, but its most prominent students went on to establish the Tokyo Ballet, and the Bolshoi Ballet Academy Company's first-ever tour of Japan was in 1985. Several Japanese ballerinas also gained international fame around this time. Among the most prominent was Morishita Yoko, who took the gold medal at the 1974 Varna International Ballet Competition, danced at the Silver Jubilee for Queen Elizabeth II in 1977, was the first Japanese ballerina to ever perform at the Palais Garnier in Paris in 1981, performed with Rudolf Nureyev from 1985, uh, to quote his Wikipedia page, some consider him the greatest male ballet dancer of his generation, and she won both an Olivier Award and a Japan Academy of Arts Award in 1985. We see from these events a trajectory of ballet in Japan, from a rarely performed Western art only accessible to the upper classes and aristocracy, to a more popular and widely recognized art form at which Japanese artists were excelling on the world stage. But how does this link up with the idea of recreational ballet, and why is Glemmy making Lena take ballet lessons? You will no doubt be shocked to learn that it has to do with class and gender. It varies by country, of course, but in many places, ballet has strong class associations. One source from the UK analyzed perceptions of dance among 14 to 18-year-olds and found that ballet was perceived as being for, quote, really girly types and, quote, posh. That despite being characterized as boring and pointless by 11 to 16-year-olds, it was also considered a high-class activity. The source also gives a nod to the idea that ballet consumption, viewing, and classes could be pursued by young women who want to be perceived as girly or posh. Added to these associations, in Japan, ballet is a symbol of westernization, and so is a vehicle for enhancing social status. In Japan, class is largely marked by consumption patterns. It's an old statistic at this point, but the vast majority of people polled in Japan consider themselves middle class, regardless of their income. And consumption patterns can also be used to hide class differences. At the same time, the improvements in standard of living and increased buying power of Japanese families meant that middle-class consumption of luxury goods was increasing at the time the double zeta was made. Unlike the economic booms of the 60s and 70s, which were fueled by exports, the economic boom of the 80s was fueled by domestic consumption. The French sociologist Bourdieu wrote that the amount of cultural capital an activity gives you is a product of the difference between that activity and daily life. Therefore, in Japan, activities like swimming or cooking lessons garner less cultural capital, while traditional Japanese or Western arts garner more. What classes or activities a person participates in, uh, the handy honorific term for this in Japanese is okeiko, these are a way of distinguishing oneself from one's peers. 
One Japanese author whose paper I consulted noted that Japanese ballet has its own unique aesthetics. It is not bound by the same rigid body type ideals that Western ballet schools tend to be. But even without the requirements of height, limb length, and proportion, uh, one school famously only accepted dancers whose legs were 52% or more of their total height, and another school stipulated that a dancer's head could be no more than one-eighth of their total height, uh, ballet in Japan is still seen as a way to cultivate, quote, middle-class feminine beauty. It is seen as helping women become slim, elegant, and delicate. In a piece of very circular logic, ballet's privileged aura is seen as useful for attracting a husband with a good job. Starting with the recession of the late 1980s, people became less likely to marry outside of their socioeconomic class. The same trend has been observed in the United States. Here, it is often described as that executives used to marry secretaries and now they marry other executives. Uh, Basically, class insecurity, the fear of falling into a lower class status, drives middle and upper class people to consolidate their resources. So being sure that you project the image of already being middle or upper class is seen as helpful in attracting a middle or upper class mate. The same Japanese source I referred to earlier stated that from the late 1950s to early 1970s, quote, learning ballet was the dream of many middle class girls. To the point where nowadays many adult women take up ballet, both for personal enrichment and because it was a childhood dream unrealized. For older women, middle-aged and up, the purpose of ballet study shifts, and it becomes a small rebellion. Most of these women are stay-at-home wives and mothers and are expected to joyfully spend all their time, money, and energy on their home, their husband, and their children. To take time and do something only for their personal enjoyment can be seen as selfish. It bucks some of the gendered expectations they live with and gives them a creative outlet and source of personal fulfillment. Uh, But obviously, Glemmy is having Lena learn ballet so that she will seem high-class, educated, and graceful. And he has, in the past, talked about trying to get her to fit into the upper class of Axis society. So that is both the implicit and the explicit goal. Hey, should we do a memorial for Eno's internal organs? Eno is a ghost now. (laughs) But he's a friendly ghost. It's true. Eno is a good ghost. Next time on episode 3.21, Heart to Heart, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 23 and... You tricked me! I deceived you. Hypnosis. Global warming. What do we want? A cause worth fighting for. Obligatory re-entry episode. Checkmate. Cognitive dissonance. The chorus weighs in. Judo's min-maxing. And I don't like you. Is there going to be a but? No. You will see the battlefield of new types. Soup Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, 
The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, MSB missed a perfect opportunity to create an heir to Kai's proud legacy by dubbing Gotten, Mr. <laughs> Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. I can reunite her with her, but we can... Say that last sentence again, because you said I can reunite her with her. Oh, I can reunite you with her. I can reunite... I can reunite... Now I can't say it. Now we're recording. We we missed out on all that good banter. We probably weren't going to post any of that anyway. No, no, we weren't. Um, Yeah, I mean, don't meet your heroes. If you meet them, you must kill them. (laughs) You must place their tender necks on the altar of a better tomorrow. If you meet your hero in the street. You must kill them, yes. (laughs) Oh, 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 that's a reference. Well, I guess that's an illusion. <laughs> if it's classy, it's an illusion. Nah, never mind. Cut this part out. This just reminded me, wasn't one of the main ways to lose fingers and or hands and or other parts of you uh, if you were a sailor, if you got them caught in rope of some I think, kind? I think so, yeah. Like I said, it's incredibly dangerous. It's been a while since we've talked about Tazur- Tazurakaka. <laughs> oh. Oh. We gotta do the laugh again, because we have to both laugh. Really? <laughs> I hadn't read the stage direction, that's why I didn't laugh. Metal Gear? What's Metal Gear? <laughs>